I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is poet and teacher Aisha Sharif. Our conversation is being recorded by Zoom. Aisha Sharif is a Kaveh Kanem Fellow who resides in Shawnee, Kansas, a suburb that borders Kansas City, Missouri. In many ways, much of her poetry and nonfiction addresses the politics of bordering identities. As an African-American Muslim woman, originally from the South, her work explores how racial, gender, and religious identities align, separate, and blend. Her poem, Vanna White Reconsiders Her Pact with Her Gin, was nominated for a Pushcart Prize in 2019, and her poem, Why I Can Dance Down a Soul Train Line and Still Be a Muslim, was nominated in 2015. Aisha's poetry has also appeared in Rattle, Callaloo, Crab Orchard Review, and Calyx. Her first book of poetry, To Keep From Undressing, was released by Sparkwell Press in 2019. Aisha earned her MFA in creative writing at Indiana University, Bloomington, and her BA in English from Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. Aisha teaches English at Metropolitan Community College in Kansas City and is a wife and a mother of two beautiful girls. Aisha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm excited to explore your book and the poems and the life that you talk about and to keep from undressing. I wanted to ask you straight out of the gate, um, was it a cathartic experience? In what ways was it a cathartic experience for you writing that book? Yeah, I think that um, writing many of the poems, uh, are a lot of them are based on my personal experiences. And so in order to write anything that is personal or stemming from the personal, I think you have to go back into the past and the present and really kind of address some of the things that perhaps you never really thought about a lot of the times. So there's a series of poems in where I um, imagine what my life would have been like if my father hadn't converted to Islam. Um, Both my parents grew up as Christian and they converted in the late 70s, early 80s. And um, I wonder like, okay, if they hadn't converted, what would my life have been like? And that was just a random conversation that I was having with a friend. And that friend really pushed me to explore that. And I started writing these poems and it made me really think about, well, why did my parents convert in the first place? So questions like that seem to pop up that I intend to write one poem, but in order to write it, I have to really think about some of the underlying issues that it brings up. And so I really, really had to kind of evaluate my relationship with family, my relationship with my spouse and children So a lot of deep reflection, for sure. Um, There's one poem, it's called uh, The Fitting Room, in which I present myself changing my clothes in a a fitting room in a department store. And I just blurted out, okay, what's the real reason why I wear my scarf? What's the real reason why I cover and wear hijab? And I just articulated that here's the reason why. 
And it may not be the reason that I say um, on stage or that I articulate in these interfaith circles. Part of it might just be because I, I'm just used to doing it, right? It's just a habit. And pushing myself to say that was really scary, but it was freeing because at least I admitted some truth that I had never allowed myself to be confronted with. I'm so glad that you mentioned that poem uh, because I, I have your, your book here and you can probably see a tag there and that actually is to that poem. Okay, awesome. Uh, and, and there's a line in it where, um, so obviously I would encourage listeners to just buy the book so they can enjoy the poems for themselves. But just to give them a sense of context for the poem, uh, you're in um, a fitting room in some retail clothing store and you're asked a question by the sales assistant about uh, the nature of the clothes that you wear and how they represent some uh, outward sign of faith. Right. And as you just mentioned, you're, you're talking to her about all of the expected responses, but then, but then you say this in the poem, the truth is I cover because I always have, afraid of what I will see, skin and doubt. I cover so I don't have to think about whether I truly believe. I specifically tag that myself to, um, to, to look at it because I think clothing appears a lot in the poems throughout the book. Your relationship with the, with the clothes, um, what they signify to you, what they signify to the world at large, stereotypically or otherwise. Um, the nature of how they just fit on the skin and the body. Um, and also at some points you daydream about what life would have been like if you weren't wearing this right. kind of garb. I love that this has come up so early in our conversation as a theme. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about your relationship with clothing. Yeah, it's, it's really um, tied heavily into my identity as a Muslim um, it's very gendered in that respect. Um, as a Muslim, I grew up, you know, uh, being introduced to wearing what the term we refer to as the hijab, which loosely refers to the physical head covering. Um, and so I have I've been wearing it for the past mm, maybe 25, 30 years. Through my teenager years, through young adulthood, I have this connection with uh, essentially not just a piece of cloth, but also wearing long sleeves and long pants and kind of in some ways, like the idea of modifying clothing because of faith. And so on one level, it's, you know, a representation of the spiritual kind of commitment that Muslims take, but, and it's, it's a sense of pride. It's also a challenge though, living in a society that doesn't really view clothing as a representation of faith. Um, unless you're a nun, perhaps that might be the one exception. But um, I would say in the West, like the less you can wear, <laughs> the more free you are considered to be. And so the adoption of more clothing is seen as very, as the antithesis perhaps of freedom. Um, and so kind of the wrestling with that has also unfortunately tied itself to my relationship with clothing. Um, so it's kind of that, ba that battle of owning clothing and seeing it as a reflection of faith and um, that modesty, but then also kind of like, oh man, all of the altercations literally that has to be done to these clothes to make them fit 
the way that you want them to. It feels very courageous for you in some ways. You know, in, in one of your poems, I think you reference being in college just around 9-11. Mm-hmm. And at that time, the act of wearing clothing, but it right. represents a symbol to right. people. And that was an act of courage then. I think it remains an act of courage now where it's, you know, it's the opposite for, say, you know, Christian faith here. Yeah, it, it definitely is. It's, it's kind of like a, um, a badge of courage in many ways to kind of flip that, that concept there. Um, and again, kind of going back to like the duality, like, like how I see it versus how other people may see it. So I may see it as this act of faith, as a honor and courage, while other people may view it as oppressive which makes me work even harder to try to explain it, whatnot. So it's almost like this cycle of trying to rewrite perception. And, and it's even more complicated because that rewriting involves the body <laughs> in many ways, because it's like, oh my gosh, I have to rewrite how you're viewing my body in many ways. And it gets kind of, you know, tiring at times. Sometimes I even think about, oh, wow, like, how would my perception or how would I have written this book differently if I did not wear the hijab, right? Like, of course, I wouldn't have all these poems, but I wonder if my relationship to my faith would be different if I didn't have this physical marker um, in that respect. I really enjoyed how in the book you you seek to navigate what you call those bordering identities, those intersections, and they could be chronological, they could be around faith, they could be around you know, ethnicity and, and all of these things. Um, but I want to touch just for a second on on family relationships. And you mentioned this earlier that you were born into a family that sort of began its, its life, as it were, in, in, in high society and uh, following a Christian tradition. And then you mentioned that your father converted to Islam and, and, and then you were born and you had sisters who, older sisters, but you were born into this uh, Muslim context. Uh, you have a poem in the book called To My Muslim Father and you write in there that faith became my ticket to you. Uh, is there any, I don't know, maybe resentment that the relationship, the father-daughter relationship that you have had to be navigated? It, it was insisted upon that it was navigated through, uh, through a faith and perhaps not outside the border of, of what faith meant. 
Oh, that's a really deep question. I don't think I've had anyone ask me that question before. But it's again, like again, we talk about catharsis, right? Going there. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of resentment in the book, and I don't think that I realized how much res- <laughs> resentment was there until it was all collected in one book. Because a lot of the poems that I wrote, and this is a tangent, but a lot of the poems I wrote were sprinkled over several years, if not actually a decade, and so. I couldn't really see the arc until they were all collected in one book. Um, but yeah, I think that there is, you know, the, the, the underlying question, like not only what would my life have been like if I was a different faith, because I think a lot of people might wonder that too, but more so how would my relationship with my parents have been different because it probably was there in the sense that it's not just a general reflection, like, no, like if my parents had not made this decision, I probably would have been a completely different person and would not, you know, I, now I don't have access to this society that they had access to. So there is that kind of feeling like I was cut off from something that I'm really interested in having explored. And my father never really talked about that life beforehand. So it was kind of like in that poem, like, okay, well, the the way that we're going to establish this relationship now is through the things that you're now passionate about, which is faith and perhaps teaching, which was, you know, great in many respects because, you know, I, I love those two areas as well, but it also felt like something was left unexplored, you know, the elephant in the room, perhaps. What I what I love about the book, and you mentioned this arc of you know a decade or more when these poems are being formed before you pull them into sort of a, a coalescing. As you move through the book, you land at an ending which is an inversion. So instead of being a child to a parent, you are now the parent to a child, mm-hmm. and you are a mother to a daughter. And it feels to me as if you're sort of processing that catharsis. Because in some ways it feels to me reading the poems and I could be reading these with my own subjective incorrect lens, but it feels like you're giving your daughter permission to lead her own life of witness, hijab or or no hijab, Mm -hmm. but also finding that she is teaching you something again about faith. And I wonder if you might just reflect a little bit on how your attitudes to being a daughter to a parent, but also now being a mother to a child, how your lenses on those two things have shifted because of those two perspectives. Well, that's a fabulous question. Um, Yeah, I think like going back to the aspect of resentment in many ways, I think it's really easy and to some degree a little natural for the child in the relationship to kind of resent the parent because you didn't do this, because you didn't do that. And, oh my God, my life is horrible because you did do this or you didn't do that. And I I think once you get into the parent role, you realize that like the the aspect of choice, I think that last poem that you're referencing has a lot to do with choice. One, giving my daughter the choice of whether or not she wants to wear hijab and how she wants to show up when it comes to faith, but also me realizing that, Choice is something that I have to kind of wrestle with now. Like um, maybe I have to revision how my parents approached me. Maybe it's not so much about what they did and didn't do that negatively affected me, but also kind of going back to that poem about like, 
you know, the conversions, like maybe their choices, of course, affect me, but I have a choice in how I'm going to view them, right? Like we all have a choice of how we're going to see the world and we can choose to view it in this one kind of dimensional way, or we can choose and say, okay, you know what? I didn't get this, but who says that that really is a value? And maybe I got that same kind of a thing through something else, and maybe my parents were making this, the, the choices that were responsive to their parents and whatnot. So it's this just kind of ongoing cycle that I think by the end of the book, and even now I realize that, you know, it's all about choice and there's no one perfect choice in, in many ways. Sunlight that always stays Dinner by the waterway It's that sweet life Raise your Another relationship that you navigate in the book is that with um with your sisters but but one in particular asthma asthma and it feels quite haunting that feels the the poems written at that time are quite uh challenging and and this might lead us to the title of the book but you have a couple of poems in there and forgive my pronunciation but uh, you have a part one and part two ida ida thank you um which relates to a ritual, a, a process of divorce in Islamic faith and tradition? Yeah, it's a, a quote-unquote a waiting period where after a divorce, the two people, particularly the woman, it does not get remarried um, because perhaps she could be pregnant. And so if she married too early, there'd be questions about the paternity um, but also to see if the two reconcile and, you know, they change their minds. Not giving too much away for those people that are hurrying right now to buy this book from you. Um, it, it sounds a little too traumatic for reconciliation in, in the reading of the, the poetry. But it leads me to, um, again, this, this idea of how you're sitting at these bordering identities because in one of the poems you talk about, uh, you, are, you are your sister. Not only are you your sister's keeper, but you are your sister. But your sister is quite unlike you in, in many ways. And um, I mean, one of the first things she does is buy you tickets to a Prince concert. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so you're dancing, and, uh, but, but even dancing becomes something that is um, something you have to work out in, in, in your head. How does this fit into the way you express your faith? So you're constantly being push to these liminal spaces, these boundaries between these places. And I wonder if you might talk a little bit about, uh, again, about these relationships. How has the relationship with your sister influenced the kinds of choices that you find you're making as you live in this kind of borderland of identity? Yeah, that's a good question. And this was part of the most cathartic um, process, um, part of this process, these poems right here. Because it de- definitely made me think about like how different siblings can end up being and the different lives and choices that they end up making. It's like, hey, 
we lived in the same house by the same parents. And it's not like we're 15 or 20 years apart, you know, we're just maybe like four or five, but just, it just hit me like how one sibling can lead one life and another sibling can lead a different life based upon the choices that we make. And I, I, you know, like I sometimes wondered if I was living vicariously through my sister and the good and the bad, like going to the Prince concert and, you know, just kind of, emulating her like sass and pizzazz and her confidence. But even in the writing of the poems, sometimes I kind of regret even having published the poems because I almost wondered if I was, you know, again, kind of like using her as a poem in many respects. But even in the writing of it, it definitely made me think about like, okay, one, I am learning lessons about marriage through her but how fair is that? Like, I really had to hold myself accountable. Like, this is my sister. Like, like she's not just a poem. She's a real person. And so that kind of duality there of like, how do you write about family and learn from that lesson, but not exploit them? Um, I mean, her name isn't actually Asma, but, you know, just like that kind of it, it it was it made me think a lot about family dynamics, but also the challenge of writing about family too. I'm kind of curious. I wonder what your daughter will think, or your two daughters now will think once they get to a place where they're actually considering what you wrote, and you won't be able to take it back at this point. At that point, <laughs> right? And that that's the thing about having something published, right? Because I'm I'm the type of person that will sit and sit and sit on stuff like. A, a lot of those poems about my sister, like I sat on them for years. So they were super old by the time that they came out. And when they were published, I kind of thought, you know what, we're totally in a different space. This is really old. And I almost wonder if that's how my daughters will view this. Like, wow, mom, that's really kind of an old issue or an old feeling that you were articulating. But I almost feel like that is it's still good to capture because one, it reminds people who may not have been conscious, like my kids, you know, it's three and six years old who may not have been conscious of how that, like what was happening during that time. Um, but I also think it humanizes perhaps like me as a mother. I think it's so easy for children, specifically daughters to kind of have this image of the parent but yet you get the poem and you're like, oh, this is what my mother was struggling with. And this is how she viewed me. And wow, this is really complex. Um, so I think in many ways it could be good to kind of just let my daughters know what it was that I was exploring during their childhood. Is now a good point just to pause and ask if you feel moved to read a poem of your choice? Sure. I could totally read any. Um, there's so many that came through my mind. I mean, I could read a, um, one that was already mentioned. I know you mentioned the Vanna White one or the Fitting Room or even the poem about my daughter. All right. So this poem is entitled, If My Daughter Does Not Wear Hijab. My daughter's hair grows black. Its curls are thick and wild. The roots soft and wavy the ends rough and tangled. I could straighten it, smooth it out like my mother did mine, each Saturday by the kitchen stove, tie a scarf over it at 11 years old. Or maybe I will stand in awe of her crown of curls, adorn it with pink bows, let it poof in humidity, let it grow 
into itself. Her hair holds faith and questions together just as any hijab could. Each kink, her way of wrestling with God. Daughters will always twist themselves anew. I cut my hair, switched between hoodies and hijabs, stopped praying at mega mosques. My daughter will uncover herself too, and I will help her. Oil her scalp, her own ablution, make a puffball or plait, French braid or afro. Each style a new supplication, and I will send her off to the world and tell her this too is witness. Honey, honey, I got what you want. Give me all of your love, it's burning hot. It's what you do to me, babe, I can guarantee. Honey, honey, I got what you need. Black under the night sky, I want your So I don't know if you are aware of this, or this is just the effect that you have on a reader. So I, I don't know how intentional this is, or um, that you're unaware of this, but you have a, a uh, melodic quality to your reading. I heard you recite your poem, After School on the City Bus, Memphis, Tennessee, at Omaha Lit Fest a year or so ago, and it was beguiling and shocking. And it's beguiling and shocking as you read it on the page, but what lent it the power, the potency uh, that I think held the audience riveted, me included, was the fact that you essentially gave it a cadence and a, and, and a sort of a, a, a lyrical reading. I know poets are always told that you should, you should read poems out loud, but I think yours in particular, um, and not all of them, but but some, I think, in particular, are specifically geared for this, and as distinct from slam poetry, too. So I guess my question is, are you aware of that uh, effect? And do you actually write your poems having a tune or a melody in mind as you write them? Yes, I am aware of the effect. And I actually forgot that I read that poem at the Mohammed Festival. And as you were saying that, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I read that poem. Like, why? I don't, I don't even remember what the process was that made me come up with the decision to read that one. You know, it wasn't like it was a theme of the, the festival anyways. But um, I am aware of the effect. However, in light of the second question, I did not write that poem with that melody in mind. Um, I wrote it as just like a list, like kind of initially it was just kind of like a um, wanting to just reiterate what I heard that boy say to me, right? The boy says like this, these like two or three sentences um, that were really hurtful and it just kind of echoed in my mind, right? Um, that whole day and even years later, 
And I just wanted to repeat those lines as a way to echo it. So in that sense, like, yeah, form and content matching, but I never heard it in my mind as a song until I decided to actually say it out loud. And I think maybe the first time, um, maybe that was the second time at Omaha Lit Festival. And I just chose, I was like, you know what, what if I sung this in this type of like lullaby kind of weird way to kind of create that tension. Um, Yes, I wanted that hauntingness, but that was only added on after it was written. Another theme here that I I want to pick up on is othering and this idea of being good enough and being good enough for what? Mm. And, And I want to focus on the poem Accent. Again, in compare and contrast, I am a British expat living in the Midwest of America. And so I have found that I can often talk gibberish, but people will ascribe a certain degree of intellectual uh, appeal to it just because of my accent. (laughs) But you write beautifully in um, the poem Accent that, um, I can't remember the exact phrase now, but to to know God, you need to know God through Arabic. Yeah, you can only know God through Arabic. And that brings up this contrast, therefore, to be the best Muslim, you not only have to speak Arabic, but you have to speak it well. In fact, why why don't you just be Arabic? Right. And you are not, which somehow, therefore, um, makes you second class. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, you know, that stereotype you're challenging. I love in, in your poem, Why I Can Dance Down a Soul Train Line and Still Be Muslim, uh, you have a line that says, my Islam be just as good as any Arabs. Yeah, yeah. I, again, just want to ask you maybe to unpack that theme a little bit about exploring this borderland between being uh, good enough or being uh, the best or being perceived as second class in, in so many ways. Yeah, I think that um, that really was an issue for me, especially in childhood and maybe early adulthood um, when I was constantly in spaces where I was integrating and mingling with a lot of um, Muslims of different cultural backgrounds and ethnicities and races. I don't know if it was just those specific people or if it's pervasive. A part of me feels like it's pervasive, but there's this opinion about Blacks as not being the natural, quote unquote, I don't want to say inheritors, but not being able to practice and know as much about Islam because perhaps people don't view Blacks as, quote unquote, Muslim enough because of our of, of us not having connections back to a quote unquote Muslim country. Of course, some, some, you know, exceptions could be Somalians and Ethiopians, you know, in the larger black diaspora, but yeah, I had to constantly fight not being good enough. Um, and I think that's what a lot of African-American Muslims had to deal with. And so that's why a lot of black Muslims created their own mosques, not because we wanted to segregate because we didn't like being with other people, but because when we were in those spaces, particularly with Arabs, a lot of times we were looked down upon. And so there is that feeling, I don't know Arabic, I can't speak it, so maybe I don't have access to conducting the prayers. And if I can't access the prayers through the Quran, then maybe I can't access the spiritual and God in the same way. I remember um, this I was in graduate school and this person, I think they were actually Turkish. They were like, oh, Aisha, can you read Arabic? And I was like, oh, no. And they're like, so disappointed. They're like, oh, why can't you do that? And I'm like, because 
I speak English, you know, like this assumption that if you're Muslim, you should speak Arabic. And if you don't, you should definitely want to, um, and you should try as hard as you possibly can to. So just this constant feeling of, I need to do more. I need to do more to gain this access to this faith because, you know, our holy book is written in Arabic and the translation is in, you know, English. So even that, it's like, I can read the translation, which, which still isn't the original. Sometimes feeling like even my, my, my expression of Islam is a copy um, or um, a translation. I think one of your reviewers in praising the book spoke about your rebellious spirit. You're trying to carve out a space for yourself that makes sense, that is both um, honors a rebellious faith, but also an obedient one. Mm. And so on the one hand, um, in one poem, you sort of, you, you can't deny the feeling in your hips and, and that means you need to dance. Right. Uh, <laughs> you need to make a nineties R and B playlist. Um, <laughs> But the flip side to that is, um, and, and also you've made a deliberate choice in some ways to reject the study of, of Arabic. It, it, it just didn't feel right. But at the same time, you're finding what, what are those attributes of faith that feel real and meaningful? And there's a line in a poem, I think it's the poem Hijab, and you, you convey multiple definitions for what that actually means. And at the end, you say, no one can love God like she does. And it feels like a general statement that men have co-opted the practice of religion over mm-hmm. millennia, mm-hmm. but it's women that really embody a real, genuine, authentic relationship between faith and God. And maybe I'm misconstruing that. Maybe that's a bit bold, but it, it feels like you're trying to claim this space for yourself as a woman, as an African-American, as a person of faith, as someone that likes to dance, all <laughs> these things. I really appreciate all of the things that you're saying it, because they're actually making me return to a lot of poems that I, I don't want to say I forgot about, but that perhaps I don't think about as much, but like, yeah, there's a poem or where I, um, I'm in the club. There's um, <laughs> being in the club. And, it, and I reference that because it kind of ties in all the things that you just mentioned about dancing and about accepting certain things and then like leaving off certain things. So it, a lot of it is about trying to, me trying to navigate how I see myself connected to faith and saying, you know what, I'm not going to try and, and be fluent in Arabic anymore because that's not what I really need to express my faith. Um, but then also at the end, there's another poem where my daughter pulls me to pray and yet I'm speaking some Arabic, but it's the Arabic that I feel like is necessary for me. So a lot of it is trying to find that middle ground. And so, yeah, I went to the club, but maybe I'm not going to twerk and I'm still going to keep my, my hijab on because that is important. Again, going back to aspects of choice, like the choices that we all make 
essentially, particularly later in life, right? When, cause when you're first introduced to faith as a child, a lot of it is very informed by what your parents think that you need based upon what they like and dislike. Um, and so as you grow older, I think the, the idea of, you know what, I'm not going to wear this. I am going to wear this, or I'm going to change this church and go to this church. That aspect of choice becomes so much more possible as you grow older, which I think in many ways is a good thing. Of course, you can have too much choice, um, but I think that navigation of the finding that middle road is is what I think the book is really reflecting as far as a search. As I think it's become clear, there are so many rich veins that could be tapped to entitle the work, the book as a whole, but you chose to keep from undressing, which most prominently pops out in a poem about your sister. My reading of that poem was that there had been some trauma, maybe some physical violence had been inflicted upon her. And in some ways, keeping clothes on was a way to kind of resist confronting the physical manifestation of that, as well as maybe metaphorical concealment and and that sort of thing. But why? Why that title? What was it that made you think that's that's the title that's going to capture this collection? Well, um, one, I think your reading of that line and it's, you know, metaphorical and literal, you know, meaning is spot on. Exactly. Like, because it's the idea of undressing what we choose to keep on and what we choose to, to take off is, I think, very much telling about where we are in our lives. Um, but I, um, a friend of mine actually was reading the manuscript because I didn't know what to title it. And I was originally going to title it after another poem called Under Veils. She was like, no, don't do that. She just was reading through and she said, here's, here's the title right here to keep from undressing. And at first I didn't see the connection, but after sitting with, with it for a little bit, I realized that the notion of like, look at all the things that we do to reveal and not reveal ourselves, right? All the ways. And in many ways it speaks to how the book is dealing a lot of times with hijab and veiling, but like, it's not just physical, but it's things that you choose not to say things that you choose to say, those that moment in the fitting room where you're giving a confession, um, but I put the clothes back on, <laughs> right? The, the things that you finally see in your sister that you wish you saw in yourselves and the things that you see in your family, and your, particularly your parents, um, how they undressed, quote unquote, to live their truth and how in many ways you we have to undress as far as getting rid of perceptions and, and views that we have of the other. So after sitting with it for a while, I kind of realized, okay, you know, that really speaks to a lot of the depths um, of some of these poems. So to keep from undressing, I think, could be taken a lot of different ways, right? The good and the bad. You are a teacher and you teach English and uh, creative writing. 
What have you learned that's influenced or informed you creatively from either the act of teaching or from your students? I think one being willing to do a lot of various writing exercises. I know that's going to seem kind of, you know, obvious, right? But it's so easy for the instructor to not follow their own advice because either you've published a book or because you've gone through the process already. So this idea of like, okay, our students need to write, you know, all the time. And, and I realized I wasn't. And so I try whenever my students are doing writing exercises that I do them as well. And over the summer, I just did some writing exercises that I probably normally would never have attempted. Um, but they came, I came up with some really interesting things. So always just humbling myself to be a student, um, I think is the, the most important thing I've learned. Would it be okay if I ask you for another reading, please? Sure, sure, sure. This is the opening of the book. Why I can dance down a soul train line in public and still be Muslim. My Islam be black. Not that don't like white folks kind of black. I mean my Islam be who I am, black, born and raised Muslim in Memphis, Tennessee, by parents who converted black. It be my two brothers and two sisters Muslim too, black, praying at Masjid al-Mukmanun, formerly Temple Number 55, located at 4412 South 3rd Street, in between the strip club and the Save-A-Lot Black. My Islam be bean pie black, sisters cooking fish dinners after Friday prayer black, brothers selling them newspapers on the front steps black, everybody struggling to pay the mortgage back black. My Islam be Sister Clara Muhammad School black, starting each day with the Pledge of Allegiance, then prayer and black history black. It be blue jumpers over blue pants, girls pulling bangs out of their hijabs to look cute black. My Islam be black and Somali boys and girls, grades two through eight, learning Arabic in the same classroom because we only had one classroom black. It be everybody wearing a coat inside because the building ain't got no heat black. My Islam be the only Muslim girl at a public high school where everybody Kojic asking sideways, what church you go to? Black. It be me trying to explain hijab. Black. No, I don't have cancer. No, I'm not a nun. No, I don't take showers with my scarf on. No, I'm not going to hell because I haven't accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Black. My Islam be riding on the city bus next to crackheads and dope boys black. Be them whispering black. Be me praying they don't follow me home black. My Islam don't hate Christians because all my aunts, cousins, and grandparents be Christian black. It be joining them for Easter brunch because family's still family black. My Islam be Moose Diva Black, head wrapped up, feathered and jeweled black. It be me, two-stepping in hijab and four-inch heels, cause dancing be in my bones black. My Islam be just as good as any Arabs. It be me saying, no, I ain't gonna pray in a separate room cause I'm a woman. And don't think I can't recite Quran too. Now pray on that black. My Islam be universal because black be universal. It be Morocco and Senegal, India and Egypt. My Islam don't need to be Salafi or Sufi. It don't have to be blacker than yours, black. My Islam just has to be. It's such a joyful, you know, ebullient expression of just being faithful 
and who you are. Yeah. Do you feel better when you read that poem? I do. I mean, because it's hard not to smile during it. You know, uh, there's so many different aspects of my identity that it hits on, you know, family and memories of being at this school. And, you know, it's, it's a poem that it really does make me feel proud to be Muslim and Black and a woman and in my experience, yeah. family, but um, it's just this exchange of epistles, these letters um, written exploring widowhood. These widows are writing. And so um, I've just had a lot of widows in my family. And so I've always wanted to explore that. And there's some other poems I'm also developing about Michael Jackson. So (laughs) two very different (laughs) topics there. (laughs) Well, I don't know where to take Michael Jackson. I remember my Michael Jackson anecdote is um, seeing him perform at Wembley Arena in London, and this was his dangerous tour. My then girlfriend and I at the time got there early in the morning and started queuing outside the stadium, and somehow we got within, you know, within maybe, I don't know, yards of the, the stage. So that was pretty close and um at the end it's when he switches out and so a stunt person does the jet pack and he oh yeah 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 yeah. i just remember what a stunning concert it was it's hard for me to let go of um you know the the early days which were kind of okay for me musically but like his off the wall album is just a work of genius Mm -hmm. and then there's everything else that goes with his life like deforming his body and you know, what, what he did to children, uh, you know, I, how are you dealing with this in, in your work? Yeah, I think uh, the way that I've approached it is really, I kind of started with childhood, um, which of course is so interesting and it forms so much of everybody's life, but just kind of showing, I've tried to attempt to show like the internal monologue. So I'm less interested in like, what he did and more so with what he's thinking 
like the the kind of s- the switch that flips off and on and how that manifests on the physical sense like so I'm really interested in like his self perception and the body not that I'm trying to sleep under the rug you know the aspects of like his you know really problematic relationship with children and potential you know like illegal activity and whatnot kind of interested in um, adopting his voice. So a lot of the times I adopt his voice. I don't know if you remember, like in the poems in this book, To Keep From Undressing, there's the concept of the djinn. Yes. Um, yeah. and so I bring that out and I explore like what Michael Jackson's djinn was like as a way to kind of get into some of his like trauma, perhaps. So um, the the djinns change over time too, like you're like a like a person would, because I you know the djinn of Michael Jackson from the early eighties. What a wonderful djinn! Uh, but you know, the djinn of Michael Jackson in the nineties seems to be like a sexual pervert. <laughs> yes, and the poem that I'm working on kind of sh- tries to show the progression of his relationship with this djinn, like. I would imagine that there's always been some kind of creepiness to it because gins are kind of creepy, but like, I imagine that as it progresses, especially, I would say almost early mid eighties, that it gets to be a little bit more sexual in nature. Um, because you, I feel like the shift for me in Michael Jackson was in the mid eighties physically, I think. But um, yeah, I, I, I do believe that gins can change shapes and the relationship that you have with a gin, you know, over time is naturally going to change too. But um, I think it's not finished. So I think at this point, I'm still in, in those themes. So we'll see what ends up developing. My guest today has been poet and teacher Aisha Sharif, whose most recent collection of poems is called To Keep From Undressing. Aisha, this really has been a privilege and a a real pleasure. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I, again, I love the questions and they really have made me kind of review a lot of the things that I wrote and the things that I've learned through this entire process. So I thank you very much. So I came of age in the 80s, and uh, but you know, a British context. So was, there was a hell of a lot of hair gel in, in boys' hair at that time, and, and lemon yellow sweaters. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not just lemon yellow, but <laughs> lemon yellow. Oh yeah, and white pants. But anyway, that's going too far. <laughs> didn't think that would end on lemon yellow sweaters. (laughs) (laughs) That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's radio show and podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Music